From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. The lines can be blurry and they can be overlapping. They can One can be reading a Bible and engaging in a sort of materializing practice at the same time. And so I find it helpful to think about the narrow and the broad versions of materializing the Bible, both of which hopefully readers will find helpful. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with James S. Bilo. He's Associate Professor of Anthropology at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. He's the author of four books, most recently Ark Encounter, The Making of a Creationist Theme Park that came out in 2018. He's the co-founder and lead curator of the digital scholarship project Materializing the Bible. And today we're talking about his recent book of the same name, Materializing the Bible, Scripture, Sensation, Place. Professor James Bilo, welcome to Things Not Seen. Oh, thanks so much. I appreciate being here. I want to start our conversation in a bit of an odd place. You are ducking into an antique shop there in the town of Miami, Ohio, where you live and teach. And while you're in that antique shop, you bump into something that you end up purchasing and walking out with. And you talk about that a little bit in your book. But I wonder, as a way of setting the stage for what we're going to be talking about today, what was it that you found in that antique shop? And why was it important to your scholarship as well as your collecting and antiquing bug? I can't think of a better place to start. So that's that's ideal. So I forget the exact month and year of it, but I had been doing this project under the heading of Materializing the Bible, and it had a strong ethnographic component where I was doing field work at different biblical tourism sites. But I was also interested in developing an archival sort of dimension of the project. And there were several established archives that I had my eye on and that I planned to visit and ultimately did visit most of them. But I also was interested in the idea of building my own archive through different collecting venues. And I had been through the advice of a colleague, so a big thank to Andy Blanton for first putting this on my radar as a thing I might consider doing. I had been collecting some things through eBay, and I was able to find some things like guidebooks for biblical tourism sites that I really wasn't having much luck getting details on elsewhere. And so that got me thinking, well, if, if an online secondhand marketplace would be a good place to find things, well, what about a, a good old-fashioned brick-and-mortar secondhand store? And so I, I started visiting antique stores in particular and ultimately other kinds of sites as well, like thrift stores and, and flea markets, etc. So I was in this relatively small antique store in Oxford, Ohio. 
And I was looking around and there was a lot of your usual antique store fair in the Midwestern United States. There were old toys and there were racist caricatures and there were old piles of sheet music. There's always so much sheet music uh, and uh, stacks of old recipe books. And then out of the corner of my eye, I caught a, a glimpse of something that looked like it could be uh, what's sometimes referred to as the Holy Lands, the lands of the Bible. And I stroll over to it. And sure enough, it's a stereoscope card from around the turn of the century. And it was part of a tour that one could take in their home or in their church uh, using the stereoscope. The one An early, I don't know about the original, but an early virtual reality device. And so I was really fascinated by this card and I ended up buying it and incorporating it into the project. And so this really helps us to if you will pardon the pun, frame the conversation that we're about to have, because this is a way for someone who is not in the Holy Land to visualize the Holy Land. And this is for folks that are unfamiliar with what we're talking about. It almost looks like a pair of binoculars and you put a card into it and you can adjust the card and the focus on the card. So it looks like a, do I have it correct that it almost presents a 3D image of a certain part of the Holy Land? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So the two images on the card were taken, it's their photographs, and they were taken really only, I think it's like centimeters or maybe inches apart from each other, like in standing in a certain spot. And so when you view them through the device of the stereoscope lens, it forms a 3D image. And you may have to kind of relax your eyes, focus your eyes, depending on the image. But that's the idea. So it's absolutely the idea of transporting you, the idea of immersing you into the setting without, of course, making the journey. Now, if I'm understanding correctly, the way that this works, you would call that an example of materializing the Bible, which is different from reading the Bible. And so maybe for the sake of my listeners, help to line out those differences. So when they sit down with their grandmother's old Bible and they start to read the book of James or the book of Matthew or the book of Amos, they're getting a, a, a particular imaginative experience. But when we materialize the Bible, we have a different experience with it. Talk to us about that distinction. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess I kind of think about it as um, a, a narrow and a broad way of approaching it. So under the narrow approach, which was the seed of the whole project, is the idea of transforming the written words of Scripture into an experiential choreographed environment. So this would be something like a recreated setting where people are using whatever materials they have to kind of fabricate a new environment that then people physically experience. And those kinds of sites are really at the heart of the book, primarily in the United States, but elsewhere around the world as well, that people travel to and make a kind of surrogate pilgrimage. And that was always a very helpful way to think about it as a nar narrow sense, even though I say narrowly, this, even this includes hundreds and hundreds of sites around the world. But also there's a broader way to think of it where other kinds of technologies that are meant to foster the same sorts of experiential engagement with the Bible, even if you're not physically transporting yourself or going to a setting that's physically recreated, but it's prompting the same kinds of engagements from someone. And so this would include something like the technology of a stereoscope or the technology of the cyclorama, which was an even earlier kind of virtual reality experience where the people went to specially architecturally designed building and viewed a panoramic painting. But also, and you bring up a great example of someone sitting down with what most anyone in our cultural background would call a Bible. 
And even many of those Bibles, I'm staring at a few on my shelf right now, it has all sorts of apparatus that are meant to foster your imagination and to transport you. So this could be everything from the maps that are included to genealogies, to other sorts of materials that are, in a sense, extra textual, but are absolutely crucial for the producer of that Bible for readers to most benefit, in a sense, from reading the Bible. So the lines can be blurry and they can be overlapping. They can One can be reading a Bible and engaging in a sort of materializing practice at the same time. And so I find it helpful to think about the narrow and the broad versions of materializing the Bible, both of which hopefully readers will find helpful. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with James S. Bilo. He's Associate Professor of Anthropology at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. He's the author of four books, most recently, Ark Encounter, The Making of a Creationist Theme Park. Today, we're talking about his most recent book, Materializing the Bible, Scripture, Sensation, Place. Well, you've started to give us a bit of a framework for thinking about the difference between reading the Bible and what you're calling materializing the Bible. And is it too broad to say that when I go to a theme park, and let's say that I go to Disney World and I see one of the movies that Disney has made brought to life with characters walking around and three-dimensional, almost set-like structures that I'm walking through and interacting with, that's a way of materializing the movie, if you will whether it's The Little Mermaid or an Avengers film. Now, when I say to you, that's what I'm hearing you talk about in materializing the Bible, that we're almost making theme parks out of these Bible stories. Is that pushing it too far, or have I got it basically right? No, I think you've got it basically right. You know, the, the category of theme park is one that has its own cultural history. And so there were sites that were doing very theme park-like things, but people used to call them gardens. And so I'm perfectly comfortable with that. At the same time, I probably want to recognize that the category of theme park doesn't exhaust the kind of environment that we would be talking about. We could also use museum, you know, shrine, garden, replication. You know, there are all sorts of terms that I think it's like a family of terms that that I think are all appropriate and all make sense together under this heading. So what I'm hearing you saying is that we're not just talking about one particular type of materialization, but rather it's a sweep, it's a spectrum. And so we could talk about that stereoscopic card that you got in the antique shop. We could talk about a Bible theme park. Back in Kentucky, when I was in graduate school, we took a couple trips up to Cave City, Kentucky, where there was a mini golf course called the Golgotha Fun Park, where you had biblical scenes reenacted as you were putting on your nine holes. But also we could talk about miniature models or little examples of, well, let me even ask you, when we think about in the Catholic tradition, what we might call not sacraments, but sacramentals, things that have been blessed or rosaries or things like that, are these also included in your thinking about materializing the Bible or would you think about those in a different way? I'd absolutely put those together alongside those other examples. I think you said it perfectly well. The, the book, I guess, is a bit of an experiment to see I guess I asked the question, is it beneficial? Is it useful to put all these things alongside each other and not try to separate them out? But absolutely something like the the different mysteries represented by the rosary and certainly stations of the cross would be, I think, very comfortable and belong in a book called Materializing the Bible. 
Well, and you just used the example of the Stations of the Cross, and that may be an example with which a lot of our listeners here are familiar, where you're walking around on Good Friday and you are remembering and imagining the travails of Jesus Christ on the Via Dolorosa on the way to the crucifixion. So this kind of imaginative reenactment where you are placing yourself in the story, could that be a kind of general undercurrent for all of these different types of materialization, whether we're talking about the small, the large, the one-to-one, the miniature, all the different categories that you deal with in your book, Materializing the Bible, is this a kind of common thread that runs through them? Is it's, These are all things that are trying to evoke a certain type of imaginative participation patient. 100%. Absolutely. You said it perfectly. Imaginative storytelling. The way I'd want to then add to that, to, to move it forward, use the word frame earlier, and the pun, puns are always allowed, of course, and delighted in. I find the idea of the experiential frame useful, and this is in the tradition of Irving Goffman, of frames setting our expectations and giving us a sense of, of what's going on here. And so we can think about those these different performances of imaginative storytelling happening in different frames. And I think that's where it stops being one big mass and you start seeing some of the lines of demarcation within this body of examples where some are designed for to be in a devotional frame. Others are designed to be an evangelistic frame. Others are designed to be in a pedagogical frame or educational frame. And others are designed to be an entertainment. And of course, there can be multiple frames happening at, in one example, in one performance, in one instance of evocative, imaginative storytelling. But for me, that was a useful way to start to say, okay, this example of materializing the Bible is doing this kind of cultural work in this moment for these people. Does that make sense? It does. And I, I want to, on the way to our first break, I want to linger with this idea of Irving Goffman's notion of the frames just for a moment longer. So you mentioned a couple of different types of framing, evangelistic, sacramental, educational entertainment. In your research, you said that sometimes these frames can overlap with one another. Have you ever encountered places where the frames have friction with one another, where one group is coming into a situation saying, no, this is for sacramental purposes, another coming in and saying this is for entertainment purposes? The image that comes to mind is I took a trip to Paris one time and visited Notre Dame Cathedral and walked in, and there was both a worship service going on in one part of the cathedral, and there were at least two tour groups moving through at the same time. And it seemed like that's the kind of friction and clash that I'm talking about. But have you encountered that in your own research? Yeah, I think that's a great example. So, yeah, the short answer is yes. Can I offer two examples from the book that maybe listeners can follow up on if they're interested? So the first example is a place called the Garden of Hope in Covington, Kentucky, just across the Ohio River from Cincinnati. And it's still there today. Folks can go. It's been there since late 1950s. And... It was started by a Southern Baptist pastor, and it was inspired by a trip that he took to Jerusalem when he was in the armed forces, and he wanted to do a one-to-one recreation of the garden tomb, and that's centerpiece of the site. So it's thoroughly Protestant in the sense that it was founded by a Southern Baptist. It places at its center, historically, a very Protestant site, the garden tomb. It has been run by the same Baptist church over the decades. What's striking about the Garden of Hope for many people is that they show up and for them, it resonates more clearly as a kind of Catholic shrine environment. 
Um, and there are many reasons why this might be true. The fact that it's outdoors and it has these different, if you want to call them stations, that people move through. And so it was a fascinating example to for, to think with because it often seemed to throw off Protestant visitors. They thought they were coming for one kind of experience, and then they're confronted with something that's a bit unfamiliar to them or less comfortable for them. It's not that they turned around and left. They didn't. I, I never saw anybody do that anymore. It's that they had to adjust. It, it threw them for it threw them for a loop. And same thing with Catholic visitors. I remember one group, a mid small men's group from the Knights of Columbus in the Dayton area, who came and were surprised to find that this evangelical Protestant site made so much sense to them. And so there's, I think, an example of kind of frames competing with each other. The other example, it's no longer running, but it was a theatrical reenactment of the Book of Job. And it had a standing run at a state park in southeastern Kentucky for a couple of decades, but although it started at Georgetown College, just south of Lexington. And one of the fascinating things to me about the Book of Job example is that it emerged from, from what I can tell from the archival record, a thoroughly kind of secular theater group that just saw tremendous dramatic potential in the story of the Book of Job. But they took great delight in the fact that audiences didn't quite know how to place them sometimes. And they would joyously reflect, as you read different interviews, joyously reflect on the fact that people did find a sort of biblically-themed sense of awe and inspiration in their performance. And so while they never called, they never attached any kind of devotional or evangelistic frame to it, they always attached a more of a secular uh, sort of entertainment frame to it, visitors and attendees to the play found much more and so there was this negotiation that, that seemed to have had to have happened. So there's, a, there's another example. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with James S. Bilo. He's Associate Professor of Anthropology at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Today we're talking about his recent book, Materializing the Bible, Scripture, Sensation, Place. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with James S. Bilo. He's Associate Professor of Anthropology at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. He's the author of four books, most recently, Ark Encounter, The Making of a Creationist Theme Park. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Materializing the Bible, Scripture, Sensation, Place. 
Well, in your book, Materializing the Bible, you make a distinction that I wanted to ask you about and have my listeners learn about, because at several points, you say the Bible, and you put that in quotes or quotation marks, so the Bible, and then you contrast it with Bibles. And I'd love to hear about how that distinction works for you. What is different and what is the same when we talk about the Bible and Bibles? Yeah, yeah, it's a really important question. I, I suspect it's one you've, you've thought a lot about as well. When I say the Bible in, in that kind of quote, quotation mark sense, I'm thinking about kind of the cultural category that people have in mind when they refer to individual instances or individual performances that we would call Bibles, examples of a Bible somewhere in the world. It, analytically, it's really necessary to distinguish between kind of the cultural wellspring that people are drawing on to then create any individual Bible in the world. And my thinking here is very much informed by an, an old friend and colleague named Brian Malley, wrote a wonderful book called How the Bible Works. I also have learned a lot from Tim Beale on this score in thinking about Bible and Bibles alongside each other. That's really helpful. And so I want to make sure that I'm understanding and that my listeners are understanding. So when you use this word wellspring, you're not talking about some kind of tangible place. You're not, but you're in, instead talking about the very idea of what a group of people who are worshiping or a group of people who consider themselves Christians would look at and say, ah, yes, that's a Bible and that's not a Bible. So that you put a book on the table, and it, one of them is a, is a telephone book, and one of them is the 66 kind of scriptures of the Protestant canon, there are going to be markers that they're going to see in that one that says, aha, that's a physical Bible, but you're talking about something different. You're talking about the when, when you say, think of a Bible, am I understanding that you're talking instead about, I guess I don't quite have it yet. Help me understand what this wellspring is. Yeah, I it, I think it refers to all of the different kind of cultural references and mileposts that people use for they themselves to understand what a Bible is and what a Bible isn't and what's included in a Bible and what isn't, but also the things that they associate with all things Bible. And maybe this will be helpful for your listeners, maybe it won't, and I'm incredibly indebted to my good friend, John Bielewski, who has taught me a lot about the difference between the virtual and the actual. And he's using terms from Gilles Deleuze, where the virtual refers to that kind of plane of possibility. It's all of those references, all those mileposts, all those associations, all of the things that are potentially there for people to draw on. But the actual is what we can reach out and touch and experience and pick up and read or do whatever we do with it, use it to keep our door open, whatever we might do with our Bibles. So the difference between the virtual Bible that doesn't exist anywhere, you said it exactly right, you can't actually touch it. It's just this sort of collection of cultural references. And then the actual, the physical, the performed, the individual that we can reach out and do this is really helpful, and I appreciate you very patiently lining out for us what these distinctions are. And this notion of tapping into the wellspring between the virtual and the actual leads me to then want to ask, when we're talking about these materializations, 
Are we looking at the materialization of virtual Bibles? In other words, the Bible of people's desires, what they wish it looked like, what they wish it was? Or are we tapping in some way into an actual materialization of the Bible? And this may be too abstract, and if so, I'll try and rephrase it. But it just it seems to me that there's something to be gotten at here between, if you will, the Bible on the page and the Bible of our desire, kind of what we wish the Bible was or what we wish God was saying to us sometimes? Yeah, it's a fantastic question. It's a really smart question. I want to say in, in any given performance, I mean, whether it's the Garden of Hope on a hilltop in Kentucky or a recreated Noah's Ark that's creationist-inspired and themed, or whether it's the Book of Job as the kind of a secular treatment dramatization of a biblical story, or a very, uh, since liturgically recognizable, stations of the cross that are hanging on the wall of a sanctuary. I want to say it's always, well, I don't know if I'll say it's always both. I want to say it always potentially is both, where people are drawing on, in a sense, established bodies of knowledge about, say, the geography of the Holy Land or something, and things that that have a basis in something like archaeological science. At the same time, that it's an imagined space. And at that point, you're always talking about desire. From everything from what individual characters might have looked like to the way they held themselves and the nature of their relations with each other, at any given point, probably talking about both. Depending on the example, it probably leans one way more or the other. But my guess would be that that sense of, of a desired and a real, if we want to put it that way, is ground up together, spices in a mortar that you're grinding together. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with James S. Bilo. He's Associate Professor of Anthropology at Miami University in Ohio. Today we're talking about his recent book, Materializing the Bible, Scripture, Sensation, Place. Throughout our conversation so far, you've been using a word, and I wanted to flag that word and ask you about it. You've used this word performance repeatedly, and I think it might make some of my listeners uncomfortable because when they hear the word performance, they might think, aha, this is fake, this is artifice, this is a theater show. This guy, James Bilo, he's not taking the Bible seriously. When I look at the Bible, I don't look at performance, I look at truth. How would you begin to address or re- cast your use of this word performance against that kind of skeptical hesitation? Yeah, that's, that's a, great, uh, a great question. And I, I, yeah, I, I hope all the listeners will be patient with me. But the short answer is when I say performance, I just mean things that are made public, making it sensible, A-B-L-E, to other people, taking something out of the interiority of oneself and putting it out there into the world. It's like we are putting this conversation out there into the world, right? We are performing an interview right now. So part of the longer answer for me, part of my training is in linguistic anthropology. And so I think a lot about um, how, for example, different genres, speech genres and vacation genres are being performed, how they circulate in the social world. And that, again, that's, that has nothing to do with sincerity. It has everything to do with, is it being made public to other people so that they can consume it? So this is really helpful. So you are by no means taking these things frivolously. Instead, this is your way of taking them seriously. And in particular, when we do what whether we're talking about education or evangelization or any of those sorts of things, 
or even a sacred liturgical moment, those are all in some ways taking the Bible and making it public. And if I'm hearing you correctly, you classify all of those things under this umbrella of performance. And then within that, you begin to analyze and make some divisions say this type of performance is distinct from this type of performance. Am I, am I understanding the flow of your methodology correctly, or would you say it in a, in a different way? No, that's great. That, that, that works for me. So if that's the case, and if we're dealing now with a different type of performance than, if you will, a kind of pure entertainment, then we have to look at even the most simple actions, like someone making the sign of the cross when they hear about someone who has gone to the hospital. Those are also moments of making something that is biblical, something that is liturgical, into a public display. Praying before a meal is a performance in that sense. Am I understanding it correctly? Yeah, absolutely. So if we've got these sorts of things, then I guess the next question would be, why do we need a book at all? Aren't the, aren't the performances enough? And at the end of the day, isn't it just performance? Yeah, I mean, I, I, at the end of the day, I guess I would say it's, it is performance because that's sort of inescapable for us as cultural beings, which I think is a good thing. Not to turn normative about it, but it's a good thing that things don't stay interior to ourselves, that we put them out there into the world. Your first question, I'm really, I'm smiling at because <laughs> do we need a Bible? I mean, I've tempted that to say, well, maybe we don't. <laughs> and I'm sure that would not be satisfying for all kinds of people. But my job's not to be a theologian, I guess. I think having the physical Bible, right, that one can turn to, whether it's a, the iconic leather-bound volume in our, that's very familiar to us, or whether it's a digital Bible, whatever the kind of materiality we're talking about, certainly serves all kinds of functions that people put to use. Unfortunately, I can't help but think of Donald Trump waving a Bible in front of a church and the political mobilization that he was going for. My wife and I were just, uh, and our family was just at church this past Sunday, and we go to an Episcopal church. And the reading of the gospel doesn't just include reading out loud the section of the gospel. It includes the ritual element of taking a physical book and bringing it out into the center of the room and reading it from there, from the book that, that everybody's attention is focused on. Thinking about some of my earlier work of doing ethnography in congregations and the setting of a small group Bible study and sitting around a room where everybody's holding a copy and reading along with each other. Maybe they're reading different translations, but they're all reading together in a certain sense. And so there's, I, you, want, you can keep going. There are all sorts of ways in which having the book-like version of what we call a Bible serves purposes for people, purposes that we find inspiring and purposes that we find disgusting. And that does something that may be a recreated environment or a virtual reality technology can't do or doesn't do easily? Thanks for a wonderful question. So as we're talking about this and the way in which, as you just gave us that example of kind of moving the Bible into the center of the room and using that to be the place where you proclaim the gospel message, that touches on something that becomes very important in your book, Materializing the Bible. And it's these ideas of authenticity, authorization, ultimately creating measures of power around 
a particular use of the Bible. And I wonder if, if you could help us to make that shift now. When someone takes the Bible and moves it into the center of the room and is wearing certain clothes and the, all of the focus of the visual sight lines of the room are on that person in the center and they're opening the book and it's a particular size and weight of book and they're proclaiming something in a loud kind of theatrical voice to the entire congregation, that creates a certain type of authority in that moment. And I wonder if you could talk to us about your analysis of those kind of authorization performances. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that to me, that cuts to what I hope is a central contribution of the book is to illustrate how different examples of materializing the Bible are shot through with as acts of power and as authoritative forms. So I'll give a couple of examples maybe from the book. Well, one thing to say, I think, is that different sources of authority get drawn in to any given performance. And so there might be a kind of ecclesial authority that one is drawing on. But then you also get, and you were talking about Disney earlier. You know, Disney, for, for many folks, is incredibly authoritative. Um, it's an authoritative way and, an authorita- in a sense, an authoritative tradition for creating worlds, creating immersive worlds. And so there's a sense in which there's a cultural authority happening when we draw on that kind of tradition alongside what we might more readily call biblical tradition or Christian tradition. There are also examples where the act of materializing the Bible sort of serves as as a source of authority for someone. And so the example I always think of from the book is from one of the later chapters, and it's the story of a guy named John Ruth who lived in a rural town in Georgia, south of Athens, Georgia. And he created what he called a Bible garden. And then some people uh, later on turned it a drive-through Bible garden because you, you could pull your car through parts of it. There was a winding driveway. And it was in his backyard. And he worked on it over the course of several decades, kind of continued adding to it. It's no longer there when he passed away. And when his wife passed away, all the different things that he created were cleared away. And all the pine trees that were surrounding the site, and some of which were incorporated into the art, were cleared away. And But one of the fascinating things about John Ruth is that he called himself Reverend John Ruth. And it wasn't until he stopped attending the church that he was going to and created this Bible garden. And that became sort of the central site of him practicing his Christianity that he started calling himself Reverend. And he really wasn't able to attain the status of Reverend through the formal chance provided by his denomination and was not recognized as a Reverend in the formal context of the congregation that he was coming out of. But when he was in the middle of his garden, he was Reverend John. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with James S. Bilo. He's Associate Professor of Anthropology at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Materializing the Bible, Scripture, Sensation, Place. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and discussions, all available for free for your listening pleasure. 
We're speaking today with James S. Bilo. He's Associate Professor of Anthropology at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. He's the author of four books, including Ark Encounter, The Making of a Creationist Theme Park, and he's the co-founder and lead curator for the digital scholarship project Materializing the Bible. We're speaking today about his recent book, which also is called Materializing the Bible, Scripture, Sensation, Place. So before the break, you were talking about uh, a person south of Athens, Georgia, who created a Bible garden, and you made the claim that when he was standing in the middle of this Bible garden, he took the name Reverend. And that makes me think about these kinds of performances, these kinds of materializations of the Bible as ways of creating authority. They are the ways in which we look at certain individuals and say, aha, that person has wisdom, that person has sagacity, that person is an authority to tell me about what the Bible means. We look at another situation, I'm thinking in particular about here in Chicago, you can go to the downtown area and outside certain department stores, there are street preachers who set up their little battery-operated amplifier, and they're haranguing people about smoking cigarettes, and they're haranguing people about their various sins that they see. I look at one situation, and I take that situation seriously. I look at another situation. I don't take the situation seriously. They've both got the same book in their hands. And so it's all the stuff around this that makes the one serious to me and the one not serious to me. When I say that to you, am I grasping how you're thinking about these different materializations and how they feed into authority? Or is there something that I'm missing that you would add to the equation? No, I think that's really well said. I love the example of a street preacher in contrast to some of the folks that I write about. I wonder, I mean, just as a thought experiment, would we respond differently to a street preacher who we always encountered in the same place and we saw as helping to define that environment and maybe they're adding to it in some way? Hard to imagine how that would work with city regulations and such, but just for the sake of the thought experiment, in a sense, who had made a place there who we didn't see as intruding or imposing, or at least not only intruding or imposing, but as inhabiting. And I, even if we theologically jive with them, would they seem more legitimate to us if they were doing something that we, rec- that we would call or recognize as inhabiting a place? versus intruding on a place. What do you think, then? Well, what I love about that question is it makes me think of the visit that Pope John Paul took to his native country of Poland when he was pope. And because Poland was a communist nation, he was forbidden from using the cathedrals for worship. So they took a large field and they put a 15-foot crucifix in the middle of the field, and they gathered thousands of people for a mass there. So they took over a space. But in that particular example, what we're seeing is not some kind of ill-defined space, but a space that has been well-defined and exclusionary of a kind of religious performance, and people coming in and using their materializing authority, you know, putting up the cross, but also 
all of the power of the Vatican, which sort of came in at that moment too, the person standing there is not simply a preacher, a street preacher, if you will, but he's a head of state. He's a person with national or international prominence, but he's literally invading against a kind of state exclusion. I, and so that's what I'm thinking about. But as I say that to you, I'm wondering how you as an anthropologist see a moment like that. That's a great example. I guess I, I posed the question because I was thinking through it and thinking about what are the categories that, that matter to me in, in, in responding to the question that you posed. And that distinct, the juxtaposition between inhabiting and intruding seemed to make sense to me. But I also want to say that these are always things that are going to be negotiated and contested. And I think about an example like the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., and this is a site that makes several appearances in the book. And I had an opportunity to do some field work there. And in particular, the field work was with the designers who worked on the exhibits, most of whom were not faith-based design firms. And so the museum certainly would want to see itself as inhabiting this place in D.C. For folks who aren't familiar, it's located just south of the Washington Mall, quite close, I forget the exact link, but quite close to the U.S. Capitol. And from the, the upper levels of the museum, you can look out and see the top of the U.S. Capitol. And so they would certainly want to see themselves as inhabiting the place. I think that's, that's unquestionable. At the same time, I think it's critics, both both its critics from within the world of Christianity and outside of the world of Christianity, would see them as an intruding in the space of D.C. and leveraging the fact that D.C. holds a position as, a, and I'm pretty sure I'm quoting some historians here, but the, the ceremonial center of the nation and a place that is symbolically very important to the nation and a place that is very important in the museum world and in the museum industry. And so... These things, to me, it's a crucial question, but I would always expect them to be contested. And watching those contests play out for me as an anthropologist is where the richness is. This was a fascinating aspect of your book, Materializing the Bible, and I'm so glad that you brought this up, because as you're speaking to these museum designers who are working on the Museum of the Bible there in D.C., you tell us as readers that the project that they worked on immediately before that was the Civil Rights Museum in Atlanta. And so they're using similar kinds of experiential devices. I don't know a better word for it, but tricks of their trade to allow participants in the Museum of the Bible to feel imaginatively as if they were there, wherever the there is that we're talking about, in the same way that when you were, and you described this beautifully, there's, there's a recreated lunch counter at the Civil Rights Museum in Atlanta, and you literally sit on one of the bar stools there, and you're listening to headphones as shouting is growing more and more behind you, recreating what it's like, what it was like to be there in the 1950s at the lunch counter sit-ins, and you say, and then these designers are doing similar things at the Museum of the Bible. Now, again, this, to me, pushes some of the questions about where we're getting between authenticity, veracity, verisimilitude, and tricks and fakery and P.T. Barnum stuff. And I, so as I'm skeptically bringing that to you, how do we tease these out and say, no, no, this is legitimate. This is useful for imaginative recreation. It's not just, it's not just a kind of manipulation of emotions, or is it just a manipulation of emotions? I'm not even sure what I'm asking here. 
Yeah. Well, uh, to make it even to do even better. So one of the design firms, a New York City based firm had just recently finished up the Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta. And that was one of their what a project that they worked on as a major contributor. And then they came to contribute to the Museum of the Bible. Another firm at the same time that they're working on the Museum of the Bible were working on and I, I don't remember the name of it, but it's basically the Ozzy Osbourne experience. So it's this sort of attraction that you go to to learn about the life and musicianship of Ozzy Osbourne. And so when you tug at a thread like that, it's hard not to just keep tugging. I want to go back to something I said earlier about, you know, kind of cultural reservoirs of authority and sources of authority that, that folks are drawing on. And I think that that's a great example of it, where how do you immerse an audience? How do you emotionally impact visitors? How do you tell the story in a way that's going to be memorable for people? But this is the stock and trade of the designers as professionals, but it's also something that, I mean, I've often thought about is that the wager that the museum is making is that this is going to work because it will culturally resonate with people. It has authority for people. Now, does that mean that they are manipulating emotions? Totally. They are absolutely manipulating emotions. They would probably even cop to that. They would probably say, would probably say a couple of things. They'd probably say that everybody's, you know, that every commercial you've ever watched is manipulating your emotions and they would be right. And they would probably say that there's kind of, you know, the greater good, right? That it's not just about the end here is not the emotion itself. The end is for them. In this example, the Museum of the Bible, the end for the museum owners and operators is evangelism. The end for the designers is more complicated because for most of the designers, the end is not evangelism. The end is doing the highest quality professional work that they can do. At the same time, they have ends like advancing certain models of citizenship where the idea that you are literate in biblical history makes you a good citizen, even if you have no theological commitments to being biblically literate. A number of the designers talked about the, the very fact that they accepted the contract to work on the museum was evidence that they were trying to live a certain kind of ethical, political life. The designers knew very well who the owners and operators were, and they knew very well that they were not, you know, they, that they didn't pull the same lever when they went into the voting booth, but they still took the job. Now, of course, it, it was a pretty well-paying job <laughs> for a couple of firms. It was one of their biggest paydays, but they didn't, at the same time, they didn't need that payday. They were, they're all very prestigious firms. And so it's more complicated than I think just, just a simple answer, which of course, again, as an anthropologist, that's where the richness is when things are more than what they seem. I, I don't know if I've answered your question, but maybe I've responded in a helpful way. You have, and you've given me now uh, another alley to go down. As I'm hearing you say all this, I think of the philosopher, and later he abandoned that term, but Richard Rorty, who was at the University of Virginia for a number of decades. But he basically said, when we're looking at truth questions, we're not really trying to get to something objective that everyone can agree on. Instead, we're trying to get to pretty much what we do around here. And so there are conventions that are involved in all of this. There are practices, performances, if you will, that other people around you will recognize as legitimate and authoritative. And so 
it sounds to me, as I'm hearing you talk about these museum designers who are moving from the Civil Rights Museum to the Ozzy Osbourne exhibit to the Museum of the Bible, they have a certain set of best practices that they're bringing to each of these questions, trying to create a certain type of experience. And you mentioned that they might be animated by some civic responsibility. But I think that what might make some listeners uncomfortable is they're not hearing that these recreators are animated by a sense of objective truth. And I want to make sure that I've heard that correctly, or have I misunderstood Mm. you? No, I think that's, I think it's fair. I mean, I certainly some critics of the Museum of the Bible, which in many ways has been quite popular, but it has critics from within the world of evangelicalism. I I forget if I reference this example in the book or not, but a wide listened to fundamentalist radio personality advised his listeners to skip the Museum of the Bible and go to the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter in Kentucky instead. And, you know, for him, and I don't, I, don't, I don't know, but I suspect he maybe doesn't know the full history of who designed it, who didn't, but it came through to him. This was true for other evangelical and fundamentalist visitors as well, where it didn't go far enough in terms of proclamation. It might have been impressive technologically to them, but it didn't work totally for them because they didn't meet their expectation of what a museum of the Bible that is so publicly visible being located where it is didn't go far enough. So, I mean, we're really now into stuff that fascinates me. And I appreciate both your patience and the patience of our listeners as I go down these rabbit holes. But as I'm hearing you saying this, two terms both start with S, that both start with S come to mind. One is spectacle and the other is simulacrum. If you've watched the Matrix films, you probably have heard about Jean Baudrillard and, and the idea of simulacrum, which for want of a better definition is basically a copy without an original. And so those are the two things I want to bring into the conversation now. So when we're talking about these performances, these recreations, whether a model or whether it's an immersive experience, in one sense, the idea is, and you say this very clearly in the book, to bring you back to how it actually was, that sense of authenticity. But there's another sense in which we can never actually get back to how it actually was. And in fact, it never actually was the way that it actually was. It was only ever how it actually was later when it was being told in the stories and the retelling and the mythologization. So I'm wondering, what do you think that these various types of materializations are trying to get at? Are they trying to get at some kind of core truth to bring you back to some sort of core event? Or is it this fancy word verisimilitude where they're instead trying to create the feeling of truth and the real truth is inconsequential to that? I mean, I'm sure it varies. I think for some creators of sites, they see themselves as getting to something quite real, a place that still exists. And they're trying to show you their vision of how it looked. But they would say that their vision aligns with a kind of historical reality. Again, I'm thinking about the Garden Tomb in Kentucky and the idea that they've created a one-to-one replica. For other folks, they're less concerned that things line up exactly in a one-to-one way and more concerned with the general idea that they are connecting people to some kind of truth, you know. And in most cases, this is a very kind of recognizable Christian claim claim about truth. Yeah, it's less important for them that things 
line up exactly in a one-to-one fashion that their recreation perfect or something like this. And more that through their recreation, they are providing people access to what's most important. And this is what was so powerful for me about your book, Materializing the Bible, is that the analysis that you bring, and you say this at the beginning of the book and the end of the book, it's intentionally experimental and eclectic. It's designed to be a kind of sliding scale of analyses to bring to these various moments and questions. You're not trying to distill materialization down to one particular ideological standpoint and say that's the legitimate one and all the other ones are are illegitimate. You're trying to say, we can look at all of these different expressions using this analysis and find ways to talk about them meaningfully. And that to me was an incredible piece that I gained from the book and that I know that my listeners will as well. Well, thank you. I'm so happy that resonated. As we're thinking about that structure of the book, I'm wondering, was it scary to you to try and write a book this way, particularly as it is performing itself in the marketplace as an academic monograph? It is designed to be a certain type of book. And you say very intentionally, even though it's, it looks like that kind of book, you intended it to be a different kind of book. As an author, as a person working with editors, as a person who has colleagues, I just want to ask you about the process that brought this book into the world. How did you find the chutzpah to do it this way? Because it worked so well, but it had to be something that you had to fight for either with your editors or with yourself. Yeah, I was very lucky to have really generous editors and really great reviewers along the way who got what I was trying to do. So I would say the extent to which there was a struggle was with myself. And so, yeah, so for listeners, the book is composed of 20 short chapters, each of which is about 3,000 words. And they're all meant to be little moments within this broader phenomenon of materializing the Bible. And they are grouped into three sections in many ways, hopefully just to help readers <laughs> sort through this kind of pile of 20, 20 different essays and to give it some shape. But really, it can be approached from any angle and can be read in any order. And it has that kind of choose-your-own-adventure feel to it. There is an overarching argument, but it's not as though the chapters build on each other in the way that a typical academic monograph might build an argument. So... I really had to get out of some writing habits to get out of writing habits that allowed me to have, say, 8,000 words to develop an analysis and to do it effectively, hopefully effectively, in 3,000 words and to look at examples in a different way about how I was writing them and setting them up. So I think for myself, I had a lot of writing habits that I had to, and that that certainly had a kind of a, a scary dimension to it. So I'm relieved to hear that it worked for you because I'm still (laughs) uncertain as to whether or not I pulled off the trick that I was trying to pull off. I think that for anybody out there doing academic writing, you know, there are some established conventions that are really helpful for us. And there are established conventions that I think we should feel free to monkey with or jettison altogether. It was an attempt to try to get into this phenomenon. I thought the phenomenon was had a sweep to it and had a diversity to it. And I wanted to be to respect that. And I thought that a more traditional approach to a monograph wouldn't respect the phenomenon. And so that's what I tried to do. It's such a great question. I wish we had another hour to talk about just the writing of it. Well, James Bilo, I am such an admirer of your work. I have been working alongside of you and in conversation with you for more than 10 years. 
every single time that we interact, I come away with just a, a treasure trove of new things to think about. And that was certainly my experience reading your book, Materializing the Bible, Scripture, Sensation, Place. It is a phenomenal work. It really helps my own scholarship. I know that it will help my listeners who have enjoyed my conversations with Tim Beale and other Bible scholars here on the program to give a different way of thinking about these same questions that we come back to every every couple of seasons. Thank you so much for taking the time to write the book and the effort that went into that, but also thank you so much for taking time to talk about it today with me and my listeners. So you're most welcome. Thank you for being such a close and generous reader and for all the work that you do. I'm so excited about the work that you have coming out, touching on a lot of these same themes. And yeah, it's been a real pleasure to talk with you. And yeah, thank you. We've been speaking today with James S. Bilo. He is Associate Professor of Anthropology at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. He's the author of four books, including Ark Encounter, The Making of a Creationist Theme Park that came out in 2018. Today, we've been talking about his recent book, Materializing the Bible, Scripture, Sensation, Place. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.